Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, we can give you more details about the man responsible for the West Auckland terror attack, the government's efforts to deport him, and the Prime Minister's frustrations with the law. Uh, and that is an incredibly tough set of circumstances. We used everything we could, though. National leader Judith Collins will be with us live shortly. And then later in the show, 20 years since the Twin Towers were attacked, Kiwis reflect on how 9-11 changed New Zealand. 9-11 was one of those moments when the unthinkable happened. So I think after 9-11, it's harder to say that won't happen. Name suppression has been lifted for the man responsible for the West Auckland terror attack. He was Ahmed Atil Mohammed Samsuddin. We can also reveal that before the attack, the government had been trying to strip Samsuddin of his refugee status and deport him to Sri Lanka. One News political editor, Jessica Much Mackay, is with us now live from Parliament. Kia ora, Jess. Thanks for being with us this morning. What can you tell us about the attacker's identity? Ahmed Atul Mohammed Samsuddin is the name of the terrorist. He came here to New Zealand on a student visa in 2011. What we now know is that in 2013 he got refugee status. Now the reason he got that is because he claimed he was kidnapped and tortured for being Tamil, which of course is the minority group in Sri Lanka. Now later it was found by Immigration New Zealand that they thought that was fraudulent. They revoked his his status here as a refugee, but he appealed the process. And for lots of reasons, including the fact that he was in jail, they were still going through that process when the attack happened. And that's where we're at today. So all of those details uh, were released overnight, and those are new de details for you today. See, we've heard over the last couple of days, Jess, the Prime Minister's frustrations at some of the information that had been suppressed. Of course, those suppression orders have lifted. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about the government's efforts to deport this man? So basically, Immigration New Zealand have been fighting this for four years, and it has come across the Prime Minister's desk. She has said how frustrated mm. she is by all of this. They were trying to move through this process. They were trying to revoke his citizenship. Now, one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that when he came out of jail, they were trying to detain him while that appeal process was going through. They were not able to do that. Now, don't forget, when you have refugee status, you become a protected person, so you get special rights, which is, of course, correct. But in this situation, it does add an extra layer of complexity. Mm. And we find ourselves in the situation that this was still going back and forward behind the scenes when this attack happened on Friday. No doubt there's going to be a great deal of scrutiny around those laws pertaining to deportation status and refugee status in the next few days. Overnight, Jess, we've heard from the man's family. Yes, so this has happened overnight and that was one of the delays in getting these last pieces of information out to the public. His brother has said that they were shaken and heartbroken, saying they're sending love and support to the victims, saying that he was wrong and that he was suffering from mental health issues. His mother has also done an interview with Sri Lankan TV saying that he was radicalised by neighbours, so that's an interesting new development in the last uh, hour or so. Just 
just to give you an update on those victims as well, we have just had an update from police saying that there are three people who are in hospital in a critical but stable condition. So that is a development from yesterday. One mm. person in a stable condition in hospital. It's worth noting as well that there were seven uh, victims in all uh, who were injured. Five were stabbed. One person dislocated their shoulder and another person got a, a small scratch uh, from the knife wound and police were saying that he very narrowly avoided a much more serious injury. So that's the latest that we have on those victims as well. Jess, what law changes are likely in the wake of this attack? Well, of course, the attention is on the counter-terrorism bill. Now, this was rushed through first in the wake of 9-11, and then in March 15, uh, it needed to be adjusted too. That was very evident. And that's what is happening at the moment, just not at the pace that some would like. So it's gone through its first reading earlier this year, and it's still going through the parliamentary process. You have law experts. I spoke to uh, people who are experts in the industry yesterday saying it's just not fit for purpose. We even had a judge coming mm. out, which was an unusual move, saying that there are gaps in the system. And one of the issues that they highlighted was that the planning and preparation for a terrorist attack is not covered under the legislation. And when you look at places like Australia and the UK, for example, you can face life imprisonment, really stiff penalties for planning or preparing for a terror attack. We don't have those provisions in New Zealand. So that is one of the things things that will be addressed. Now, I know you will be hearing from the Leader of the Opposition, Judith Collins, later in the programme. She texts the Prime Minister on the night the attack happened and said that they will work together on this, I guess, as a show of solidarity mm. in the current environment, even though Labour doesn't need those votes to pass it. A bit of a move of working together, which I think a lot of people in the, in the public will appreciate. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That is One News political editor Jessica Much Mackay. Jess and the One News team will, of course, keep you up to date throughout the day with any developments on the story. Great to hear those three people who are in a critical condition after this incident are in a stable condition, according to police. After the break, National Leader Judith Collins on the attack and the changes she would make to New Zealand's COVID-19 response. When the Prime Minister stood up in January and said, this will be the year of the vaccine. Oh, no, it's not. It's the year of the lockdown. Kia ora iti. we welcome back. National wants new laws that would allow someone who moves to New Zealand and commits a violent act to be stripped of citizenship and deported. National Leader Judith Collins is with us this morning, live from Parliament. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Oh, good morning, Jack. From what you understand at the moment, are you satisfied the government, the security authorities and police did everything within their power to prevent this attack? Well, it certainly seems as though they were doing everything that they felt they could do. And unfortunately, this person was on bail uh, from a violent attack on corrections officers. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot more information that comes out. And, and what we're seeing is that now there's a little bit more information. I expect there'll be a lot more. Are you satisfied they were doing everything within their power to deport this man? Well, it's hard to say that because, of course, we're only getting the information now in um, sort of dribs and drabs. But it's pretty clear that efforts were being made. 
And uh, one of the problems, I think, is that there seems to be a lack of speed in being able to effectively deal with these things. So these are some of the things that I think that we could look at in the future. If uh, you've got somebody with a situation like this, um, I certainly was only briefed on them very, very recently by the security agencies. Um, this is somebody who uh, we didn't know who he was out in the community, and partly that's to do with the fact he was a protected person uh, with a refugee status. So look, I just think there's, a, there's some work that we could do on it, and that's why I've said, look, happy to work right. cross-party on it, because it's really hard to bring through these sorts of changes in government, even if you've got the majority, if you're going to be attacked all the way through by the opposition. You say the speed is an issue. Is that a problem with the law? Mm. Well, I think it is, but it's also it's because there's so many different parts of the law coming in, uh, whether mm. it's immigration, whether it's in terms of refugee status, whether it's in terms of the criminal law. And I just think that there's an opportunity for us to look at this and say, uh, on a cross-party basis, what is going to be the best interest? At the same time, understanding that sometimes speed is actually uh, can be detrimental to try and get the right outcome. But in mm. this particular case, uh, this is obviously someone who's been under surveillance for a very long time. And most people in the community, including myself until very recently, I wouldn't have known anything about him. How much did you know? What were you briefed on by the security um, intelligence authorities? Oh, I only knew something about this guy probably a couple of weeks ago. Um, and obviously, um, people, you know, th there are briefings on various things. We don't normally talk about them. But um, quite clearly, as leader of the opposition, I don't get the same sort of briefings as uh, some other ministers, such as the Prime Minister. And how much of a threat was he from the briefings that you were given? Oh well, a few weeks ago, I was told that he was um, quite, you know, quite a serious threat, and that uh, people were, you know, surveilling him. That's what I knew. So, look, um, mm. as to who he was, uh, you know, look, I didn't know him from anybody else in the community, and that's one of the things I think, because you know, neighbours, people who interact with people, maybe you know, we should look at whether or not they can know. And the answer has to be uh, the refugee status gives somebody this anonymity. Uh, is that the right case in this you know, situation, this particular case? So I think it's, you know, we haven't had something like this um, before from a refugee um, or mm. someone who's had refugee status. We hope we never will, um, but it is very important that we do have the facts so before I, I, we jump to conclusions on it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I absolutely understand that. And I, and I want to get to one of the proposals mm. that uh, your party's put forward in just a moment. Of course, over the last couple of days, there has yep. been a lot of attention on the laws as they stand. In 2013, you removed a review of terrorism laws from the Law Commission's work program, and you said at the time there does not appear to be any substantial or urgent concerns arising from the operation of the Terrorism Suppression Act. Now that was eight years ago, so that was before this individual came to the attention of authorities, it was before the March 15th attack, it was um, before the emergence of ISIS. But upon reflection, was that the wrong decision? Well, it's a decision made uh, eight years ago after consultation with uh, Cabinet colleagues and obviously the agencies involved. And I also think too, just if you think back to that time, two years later in 2015, the then opposition leader, Andrew Little, was accusing the then Prime Minister, John Key, of scaremongering around terrorist attacks and threats in New Zealand. So it was just a totally different mm. time. Um, I'm not sure we would necessarily have ended up with a result any different, and that's what the Prime Minister said, very speculative on that. 
So we need to deal with what we've got now and what we can see into the future. But um, 2020 hindsight's one of those things that everybody would like to have. You have advocated stripping violent criminals of their citizenship status. Would deporting known extremists, albeit in rare cases, to poorer countries where there are fewer resources that can be dedicated to monitoring them. Is that the right thing to do? Is that consistent with being a good global citizen? Well, for instance, uh the number one role that the government has is to protect the citizens of New Zealand. People in New Zealand, that's got to be the number one thing. But if we have cases, and I'm sure that there will be the odd case at the moment, where someone's come to New Zealand, claimed a protected person status as a refugee, and then ended up back in the country that they came from, and they're now engaged in being connected to, uh, say, the Taliban or other um, organisations like that or ISIS, you'd have to say um, New Zealanders should come first. Should these people be able to travel into New Zealand and stay here and take all the, all the rights of New Zealand citizenship? I think these people do need to be looked at and we, we will know that there are the odd person exactly like that in the, in the world. Hang and on, sorry, sorry. Ultimately, our sorry. first... So, sorry, just to be really clear on that, are you suggesting that, that uh, people who come into New Zealand uh, and obtain refugee status and are, and are resettled in New Zealand should not have the rights that they currently, that they currently have? No, I'm saying very clearly is that when you come to New Zealand and you come as a refugee and you come in any other way and you take New Zealand citizenship, you're signing up to be... Uh, a New Zealander. Mm. You're start signing up to being loyal to this country and it is important for us to start to think about are we naive in our way of operating? Should we be saying if someone then uses that passport to go off and travel overseas engage in terrorist activity, should they keep that citizenship? Well my answer to that is no, they should not and I think a lot of New Zealanders would expect us to take those steps so that's why I've said to, uh, saying to the government this is something which would be very controversial. We can help you with it because we're not going to, to stand by and just mm. throw stones at you when you're trying to uh, fix something that we think is a problem. All right, let's talk about COVID-19. Last week, you stated a target mm. of 70 to 75% of eligible Kiwis being vaccinated in order to end lockdowns. How did you set that target? Well, we looked at uh, overseas research, um, and particularly in Australia, we were looking at uh, what they were doing there, but also what their research people were doing. Mm. And we said, look, if we can get to 80, 85%, or even 90%, as Stuart Nash, the, the Minister for um, Economic Development, says that, that uh, the government will, well, that would be great. But what we need to do is to consider, can we do, instead of nationwide level four lockdowns, can we move to more regionally based uh, small lockdowns? Can we look at these options? And there has to be some option other than level four lockdown when most of our population is fully vaccinated. And then we need to think about what happens next year because I'm already reading about mm. uh, some new variants of COVID coming out of the community. We have to have a plan, not just a lockdown plan. So if we ended lockdowns at 70 to 75% of the eligible population being vaccinated, how many deaths would we have? Well, that is something that needs to be, obviously there's been some modelling done on that, um, but obviously I'm not saying 
end lockdowns, I'm saying you can have more regional responses and that is important to consider. So not just ending lockdowns because obviously, as we know, we lose mm. around 500 people every year to the winter flu. We'd probably get something like that if we ended all lockdowns uh, for COVID-19. But I'd also say to people is we need to have a more nuanced approach. We're looking at the South Island. I think they're now about 304 days without any yeah. COVID in the community. And they're still in level three. And they're saying, well, hang on. What's but this all about? Just and the answer has to be get people vaccinated. You get options then. Absolutely. Just to be really clear, though, I mean, that was the target that you set, 70 to 75 percent in order to end lockdowns. So to, to be clear, you wouldn't end lockdowns after after 70 to 75 percent of the population no, I didn't vaccinated. Say in lockdowns, I'm saying you have options. So you can actually not have to have a nationwide lockdown mm. if you've got a really high rate of vaccination. But I've also said, look, if we can get to 90 percent, as Stuart Nash has, has uh, he's bet, I think, you know, he's bet that this is going to happen by Christmas, by goodness, we'd be doing well. And I think that's exactly where we should be trying to aim for. Let, let's look at it the other way then. How, how many deaths are acceptable? I don't like saying things like that, actually, Jack. No, I think no one nobody does. Nobody does. Well, we, we, as I said, we, we lose around 500 people every year to the winter flu, unless we're all masked up and we're in lockdown, in which case we lose fewer people. Um, but nobody wants to put their hand up and say, pick me to be the person that we lose. I think we do need to have uh, these conversations, mm. but we need to have them from a position of vaccination. Because what we know is this, is that even though people can still get COVID-19 if they're fully vaccinated, what they're going to get is unlikely to leave them in hospital or in mm. an ICU unit. Uh, they're not likely to have this, those same sorts of effects. So just let's get them. I just think it's important that we have a target. And I know the government doesn't want to set a target. So that's, that's what I'm asking just set you, a target Because we love... Okay. Okay, we but, 70, but, but what happens at 70-75%? Because you say that we don't end lockdowns at 70-75%, to 75%, so I've tried to look at it the other way and say, well, what would be, and I, it's a terrible way to phrase it, but what would be an acceptable number of deaths in order to remove those restrictions in New Zealand? You, you, one of your we, main criticisms of the government to. has been that they haven't set a target. So what is your target? Get ourselves a target to 70-75% and then we don't have to have nationwide lockdowns where Northland's in lockdown, where the South Island's in lockdown and everything's in uh, coming out of Auckland. I think we need to be far more nuanced and we cannot have those options until we get the vaccination rates up. So we're saying 70-75%. Uh, other countries are saying 75 Some are saying 60 We just believe that, and I'm not going to go around trying to pick mm. numbers and saying so this number is the right one for people to die. We don't want people dying in the first place. The other thing is too, Jack, is that there are new drugs right now being developed mm. uh, and, you know, really quite progressing on how to treat COVID. And some of these new drugs are being, we should be ordering them now. We should be out there being making sure we really are front of the queue this time so that we don't just have a plan of vaccination or death. You know, we've got to do mm. better than that. Should businesses be able to mandate vaccinations for their staff? Well, that's something we've asked the government about. What is it that, uh, what, what's, what's going to happen? So we have, a, well, my position is, is that 
businesses do need to be able to set the rules because they are responsible and under the health and safety legislation. So if you've got, it's got to be reasonable too. So if someone's working mm. in a business where they're sitting in a truck um, cab, for instance, and they're not having to interact that much with people, that's a different situation than, say, staff who are uh, absolutely in, say, even the hospitality sector. It's going to be really hard, and I think so, so, that's so, where the guidance needs to come in. Right, so, so to be really clear then, your position is think, that the businesses who have public-facing staff or people working in close quarters should be able to mandate vaccinations for their staff unless their staff have a reasonable excuse. Well, we've seen the government already saying that, haven't we, around the border workers, the port workers, the people working in aviation security, all of these people. But for it private is important businesses. to understand. Yeah, well, if government can do things in business, then surely private businesses have to be able to. And mm. I, I say this from the point of view that otherwise those private businesses, uh, business owners could find themselves liable under the health and safety legislation. Mm. I mean, this is a big move from where we are at the moment mm. uh, because there's no other situation of vaccination that that can be mandated. But the trouble is now we now have this health and safety legislation. So unless the government's going to give some exemption to business owners and business um, those who are in charge, the PCBUs in businesses, mm. then I actually think some of these people are going to say we're going to err on the side of caution. Mm. So that's where I say the government's got to come up with some solutions for them. Last week you announced a caucus reshuffle. Did Chris Bishop want to remain mm. shadow leader of the House? Well, obviously, when I discussed it with Chris, it was very much on the basis of making sure he was 100% on to the COVID-19 uh, situation, which is where his job, main job, has to be. Mm. Chris is very comfortable. He's uh, discussed it all with me. He's very happy doing what he's doing. He has he want one of the biggest jobs outside the leader. Well, obviously, everybody wants to have every, every portfolio. The fact is, those are the decisions that Shane Retty and I have to make, and we've made them after consultation mm. and a process that we've been running since December last year. So there's no, no surprises to us that we need to have Chris, now that COVID-19, the vaccination rate from the government, has been so abysmal until recently, that we need to have Chris absolutely 100% on that. And we've got people like mm. Michael Woodhouse, who's done the deputy shadow leader role for a very long time. He knows exactly how to do that role, and it frees Chris up to absolutely focus, because Chris doesn't have 3,000 staff members. He doesn't have a ministry. He's got to do it himself, and it's really important that I look after my MPs so mm. that they are not overly stressed or overly uh, occupied with other things. I think Jacinda Ardern could do the same for Chris Hipkins and just give him uh, a bit of a break so he can really focus on COVID and particularly the vaccinations. The Herald's political editor, Claire Trevette, and head of business, Fran O'Sullivan, both wrote this weekend that your leadership is under threat. Why? Well, I don't know why they'd say that. Um, I've never actually seen anything for either Fran or Claire, I think, over the years that have ever been complimentary. Um, that is their decision uh, to write that, not ours. And what I'm feeling very strongly is that the caucus is absolutely focused on making sure the government does a better job. That's part of what we do, holding the government to account, actually making sure that they do face scrutiny mm. uh, and talk about the things they don't necessarily want to talk about. So that's what I'm talking about, vaccinations, a way forward, the economy, the way in which we can help people to keep jobs and also for people to be able to keep their businesses. So, for instance, this week mm. we also came out with a commercial rent scheme to yeah. help small businesses. These are the sorts of things that we're doing. Yeah. Do you think your conduct in interviews this week has been prime ministerial?
Um, mostly, I would have said. Um, I think we all know that um, I do, can get a little bit impatient. <laughs> of a, mostly, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, too, is that my role as Leader of the Opposition, I'm always going to have to deal with things that are uh, questions that a Prime Minister doesn't necessarily have. But I also can get a little bit impatient if a journalist turns up and they don't understand the difference between a government and an opposition. Look, you know, ex expect that occasionally I am going to uh, get a little impatient. But look, Do you think you're treated Jack, unfairly? My, my main purpose is, well, I just think that sometimes if, uh, I'm not worrying about that. Um, I've never come into politics thinking, you know, it's all got to be fair. What uh, my treatment, it's not that. It's actually about, I'm here to talk about mm. things that matter to New Zealanders, like vaccinations, like a way forward, about whether or not they can ever get their kids back into New Zealand through the MIQ system. You know, we put out a new, a new policy on that today, uh, this yeah. week. Yeah. These are the things I'm here to talk about. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. That is National you, Leader Jack. Judith Collins. Coming up, we will speak with an imam about his efforts to fight extremist ideology. And then a little later, a fascinating success story for the New Zealand tech industry. A breakthrough in the central North Island, which could have major implications for the green energy revolution. Kia ora we welcome back. With the West Auckland attack, it has been perhaps been easy to forget for a moment that our largest city remains in a level four lockdown and the rest of New Zealand remains at level three. But even with the vaccination drive, the disparity in vaccination rates between Māori and other ethnicities has continued to grow. Associate Health Minister Peni Hinari is with us from Parliament. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Morena tato. Any updates for us overnight? Uh, no current up-to-date information. Um, I suspect they'll be ready by 1pm for the stand-up today. Fantastic. And we want to talk with you, uh, Minister, about equity. According to the latest Ministry of Health numbers, Māori make up just 9.1% of people who have received the first jab in New Zealand and 8.9% of Kiwis who have received both jabs. Why is that? Oh, look, we're, we're working with the community to find out exactly why too. We've invested in a number of campaigns uh, to support Māori vaccination and yet we still find ourselves lagging behind. Uh, I've already expressed my frustration towards this, but I know that there's lots of good minds putting their, putting their efforts towards how we might solve this. I know the numbers are rising, uh, but they're stubbornly low and we still need more of our people to come forward to vaccinate. For months, though, for months you've been warned by the likes of Te Ropu Whakakau Papa about equity issues, the likes of Dr Rawiri Jansen, Paparangi Reid, Eleanor Curtis and Rhys Jones say you haven't engaged sufficiently with Māori-led leadership and that opening up vaccinations to the general population will mean that Māori are left behind. Why haven't you followed the advice from those Māori experts? Uh, those people were involved in much of our vaccination planning at the start and I push back because since March, April, May I've been engaged with the Māori health sector, the Māori health provider network to make sure that we can equip ourselves uh, to best roll out the vaccine for our people. Now vaccine, vaccination centres that have been run by Māori have been operating since April. We've continued to ramp those efforts up but for some reason, and I'll, I'll acknowledge that perhaps our messaging hasn't been on point, but our Māori people aren't coming forward to vaccinate. The Delta has certainly shaken our people into action, but we need to keep the momentum moving forward. So you say the me messaging hasn't been right. What else, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think you could have done better to better engage Māori communities? 
Oh, look, you know, we've used social influences. We've, I've been to Marae right around the country. We've continued to talk with communities. Um, I'm open to suggestions, and some people have already come forward to how we might uh, better bring our young people into the vaccination conversation and keep the momentum moving forward. Um, I, like I said, I acknowledge the messaging might not have been on point. The challenge we have now is to make sure that it is moving forward. I want to keep the momentum. There have been some great suggestions coming forward to bring our young people forward to vaccinate, and I want to see how best we can run with those uh, to bring our people forward. Why wasn't the messaging on point? Oh, look, that's um, one of the challenges I'm trying to look at now because we uh, supported iwi and hapu to do specific messaging to get leaders amongst those communities to promote the vaccine, and we've been doing that since April. And for one reason or other, it hasn't quite hit the mark. Uh, so that's some of the, I guess, the analysis that we're trying to do right now to make sure that that doesn't happen as we move forward now that everyone's eligible. Should Māori and Pacifica have been promoted into higher groups so that they were eligible for vaccinations earlier? They have been. Uh, if one looks at all the Cabinet papers deciding the vaccine rollout, uh, they'll see that Māori were actually eligible for uh, the vaccine since about March, April. And we've been continually promoting kaumatua kuia, uh, those with pre-existing comorbidities. But we all also knew importantly, Jack, that we needed to build the infrastructure for the larger rollout for the second half of the year, and that's where we find ourselves now, which is why we have vaccination centres on marae, small community vaccination centres, because that's where our people are. Are Māori trusting of the vaccination programme? I believe they are, and I believe those numbers are increasing. Um, I know that at the beginning of the year, like it was around the country, there were lots of um, there was lots of misinformation and mm -hmm. lots of um, whānau and communities who still had questions and were sitting on the fence. I believe now, though, that those numbers have changed and we are seeing huge momentum amongst our people and the uptake of vaccine. Uh, now we've just got to continue that. That being said, in the, in the week to Tuesday, one in seven eligible Kiwis got a jab, but only one in 11 Māori. So at what point do you think we will see Māori vaccination rates on par with the general population? Oh, look, now that since September 1 it's been open to the entire population 12 plus uh, years of age, I, I, I expect that those numbers will continue to grow. We'll continue to push the equity message, uh, Jack, amongst my colleagues and amongst the community. I know that the Māori Health Provider Network is stretched and actually been working really hard since the start of mm. the vaccine rollout. So now I push towards the mainstream services to make sure that they too keep equity at the front of their mind when they deliver the vaccine. I know there's frustration uh, for a lot of parents in Auckland at the moment, looking at the timeline over the next month or so, thinking they're going to be in level four for at least another week and a half, maybe a bit longer. Then they're likely to be in level three for a bit. And then what do you know? It's school holidays. Has Cabinet considered shifting the next school holidays? Look, when we consider the alert levels, we consider a whole heap of factors. And given that tomorrow Cabinet sits to continue to look at the alert levels, um, I don't want to preempt any of the discussion there, but we do look at a number of those factors, including what you've just suggested. But a decision will be made once Cabinet has considered all the information. Tēnā koe. We appreciate your time. That is Associate Health Minister Pēni Hinare. A little later on Q&A, the revamped Provincial Growth Fund has put forward a proposal to make its first investment. We will show you what it is. 
But after the break, following the attack in West Auckland, a Kiwi imam talks to us about his efforts to push back against extremism. Kia ora te welcome back. Muslim leaders in New Zealand have condemned Friday's attack, but some are already reporting an increase in anti-Muslim sentiment. Imam Mustenza Kamar campaigns against so-called Islamic-inspired extremism, and he's with us from Lower Hutt this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Mustenza, I wondered first of all about your reaction to Friday's attack. Assalamu alaikum, tēnā Firstly, we, we strongly condemn this heinous and utterly inhumane attack in the strongest possible terms. Our heartfelt prayers are with the victims of these attacks and all those who have been affected. Um, such grievous attacks are completely against the teachings of Islam. Our religion does not permit terrorism or extremism under any circumstances. And anyone who claims otherwise acts against the teachings of the Holy Quran and contrary to the noble character of the holy founder of um, Islam. Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously it was really shocking, especially to hear that it was um, someone who claimed to be, be a Muslim and also um, uh, sympathised with um, an extremist ideology as well. Yeah, yeah. tell me a little bit more about that. What, what is it like to be a Muslim leader when you hear about an attack of this nature committed by someone who claims to be motivated by Islam? I mean, it's... It's almost like a, it's double whammy kind of thing because, for, firstly, it's it's a horrendous attack. Um, the law, uh, being a, uh, any innocent person being attacked is horrendous to hear about. And then on top of that, someone who's done it in the name of our faith um, makes it even more di difficult to digest. It's almost like saying, "Well, our faith teaches this," um, whereas we know, and I've studied this in a lot of detail. And that Islam does not permit this at all. And that's why it becomes almost like a double whammy and um, it becomes very difficult to digest. Mm. I know Muslim leaders in New Zealand have condemned the attack. And it's important to point out we know this man's views are not representative of New Zealand Muslims. But in your opinion, are there likely to be other people in New Zealand who share similar views? Um, the thing is, I, I don't know about... Um, other people in New Zealand. If I did, I would obviously um, teach them about the correct understanding of Islam. Within our community, we have a, a big emphasis on education and understanding even about the correct concept regarding jihad. Um, for the 132 years that our, our community has been established internationally with tens of millions of members, mm. we've never had an instance of anyone ever being radicalized um, um, because of that emphasis on education. And I take it back to that, that point about jihad, um, that I, I, looking at um, some of the books of some uh, medieval uh, Muslim scholars and um, other even contemporary scholars, there are unfortunately some very um, extreme views about um, and mis what I would call misunderstandings about the concept of jihad. And because of that, then, uh, um, I know in other parts of the world this view um, is prevalent, um, though many do not act upon it. But in New Zealand in particular, I'm not um, sure of anyone who, who ascribes to this. Do you think our counter-terrorism laws as they stand are fit for purpose? Um, I mean, looking at what, what happened um, just on Friday, um, obviously he was, he was under surveillance and um, I, I feel like maybe maybe they, they do need to be revised a bit because if someone's sympathising um, with an extremist ideology, um, 
we, we should try and prevent anything like this happening. It shouldn't be that, you know, we wait until something happens and then um, only the uh, law can be brought in. Um, I think Judith mentioned as well, or it was mentioned earlier in the program about other countries who um, have um, laws which, which can uh, prevent even the planning um, of terrorist attacks. So I think that's something to think about for the lawmakers. You think that we should have laws that explicitly would prosecute someone for planning an attack? For planning an attack, definitely, yes. Mm. Do you support the SIS and counterintelligence and intelligence services continuing to monitor people suspected of having extremist ideology? I, I do, um, and even our worldwide caliph, um, His Holiness mm. Mirza Masoud Ahmed, even he's even mentioned that um, a couple of years ago in the UK um, that even mosques um, as should uh, can be monitored, and um, even the sermons of imams. Um, I would happily um, even allow um, the intelligence services to even monitor my own um, sermons as well. Um, and I, I think that's important to to, re to know that the mosques are not, um, you know, giving it out any extremist messages as well. Just to be really clear on that, you would be comfortable with the intelligence services in New Zealand monitoring your sermons in the mosque? I would be comfortable with it. Our worldwide caliph has mentioned that for the UK as well. Um, and I, I'd be comfortable with, with, with it because I've got nothing to hide. Our views on Islam are very clear. Um, even these these misconceptions out there on um, jihad and stuff, our views are very clear about those. Um, so I, I'd be very comfortable with that. Again, I want to be really clear, Muslim leaders around New Zealand have, have been swift in condemning this attack. I mean, we have seen uh, people at the Al Noor Mosque in Christchurch raising money for the victims of Friday's attack. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the Muslim community bears mm. a responsibility for this attack. But do you think at large, Islam has a responsibility to push back against individuals with extremist views? I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that they are ascribing to our faith. Right? Um, and they're, they're saying that, you know, that they're finding um, justification from this, from the Holy Quran and from um, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him. And therefore, I feel that it is important that Muslim leaders, Muslim community, we do fight back on this. We 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 show and we prove through our scriptures, um, through the Holy Quran, through the life of the Prophet Muhammad, that mm. this is not Islamic. And so that you, when you understand the true teachings of Islam, you're able to distance the actions of these Muslims from the religion itself, um, and you you realize that they they're actually criminals. They're going completely against the teachings of Islam, mm. and it's not the faith which is responsible. It's their individual actions, just as was highlighted that it, it's the individual actions of these individuals which should be condemned. Um, it's not our faith which is responsible. It's not Islam which is responsible for this. And I, I feel that we need to highlight that correct understanding, especially mm -hmm. regarding concepts like jihad, which are responsible for, for such um, heinous attacks. Yeah, I know you've done a lot of work in this space. Just yesterday, you appeared at a public panel promoting peace and promoting uh, your efforts to push back against extremist views within Islam. How do you go about doing that? Um, well, yesterday, coincidentally, um, we had a um, peace symposium and the title, the theme for it was um, Countering Violent Extremism. Um, and that was because of the National Hui in June um, mm. earlier this year, um, which also had that same theme. So we thought we'd carry that on and share it with a wider community. Um, but 
I ended up changing my talk to countering violent Islamic extremism and highlighting some solutions um, to that. Um, but even for, for a number of years, um, we've started a, a nationwide campaign. Um, you can probably see I'm wearing um, this jacket as well, which says Meet a Muslim um, on it, and it highlights our campaign. We've been got, we just uh, earlier in March, we went across the whole country to every city of New Zealand. Mm. Um, with our Meet a Muslim campaign, we were out on the streets wearing shirts saying, I'm a Muslim, ask me anything, with a whiteboard saying, um, you know, Meet a Muslim, ask me anything. Um, we, we want to essentially get rid of misunderstandings and humanize that relationship. Um, and but also we've met people even who've been influenced by the far right um, and we've had discussions with them and they've had a complete turnaround because once you understand what the true Islamic teachings are, the correct understanding of these, it, it mm. changes perception. So it's not only changing perceptions of Muslims by giving these correct um, understandings about Islam, but it's also e even influencing the far right, who, which they drive their narrative from such things as well, um, from such misunderstandings, from um, so-called scholars who are promoting such things as well. So it's important that we all... Um, understand this and that can help eliminate these things and we also have like different exhibitions across the country we have quran exhibitions where we also hold um, seminars throughout the day uh, mm. which are on the quran and terrorism in particular um, but i feel like um, maybe in the coming days i'll probably have a bit more um, efforts on social media as well because a lot of people who are radicalized are unfortunately radicalized on social media so uh, maybe we need to be doing a bit more efforts on highlighting these and the yeah. correct understanding on social media in particular. So um, I'll be doing that in the coming days as well. Thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. We really appreciate it. That is Imam Mustenza Kamar. Friday's incident and the focus on terrorism in New Zealand this week coincides with the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, an event that has arguably reshaped our world more than any other this century. 20 years on, Fena Owen spoke to three Kiwis about how 9-11 changed New Zealand. Building has collapsed. On Wellington's Willis Street, lunchtime pedestrians crowd around shop windows fixed on TV screens. John, thank you. John King, our senior White House correspondent. Paul. It's September 12, 2001, and hours earlier, 19 terrorists had slammed planes into targets in the eastern United States. To see this, it's shocking. It's just terrible. Pretty intense stuff, yeah. 9-11 was one of those moments when the unthinkable happened. Professor of Strategic Studies at Victoria University, Dr Robert Ason. I think like a lot of other countries, um, New Zealand felt itself vulnerable in a way that we, we hadn't, you know, the fact that, you know, aircraft had, had been hijacked and flown into um, the World Trade Centre and other American targets and a complete and utter surprise just indicated that, that international vulnerability. So there was that shock. And nerves. Prime Minister Helen Clark was in the air en route to Rome for trade talks when the disaster unfolded. Amazingly, the head of Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet was able to get through to me on the plane. That at least enabled me to get off the plane in Rome, uh, briefed and to make the immediate decision that at the end of the day, I would take the first connection back to New Zealand. The safety of New Zealanders in the US and at home was her first concern. The assessment is that it's not likely that we would be targeted, but what you can't rule out in an event like this is copycat crime. As the Prime Minister made her way back from Rome, aviation security was already responding to airlines' new demands for screening. 
Just hope they put people through it. In those first few days, harrowing stories kept coming from Ground Zero. In New Zealand was a long way away from it, and it was a long way from you know the caves in Afghanistan where Bin Laden was. Nonetheless, so many New Zealanders knew somebody in New York, so the phones were going. Meanwhile, New Zealand's small Muslim community watched the aftermath with dread. Muslim community leader Anjum Rahman. Obviously, the first concern was for the people that were killed and dying and our own sympathies there. But also, we expected that there would be a backlash. After this event, certainly, we were very much a focus. And that negative attention continued after the Bali and London bombings. Verbal abuse, harassment, being told to go back home, being called terrorist. But 9-11 was a personal turning point for Anjum. She began wearing the hijab and was determined to give Muslim Kiwis a voice to explain who they were. Being much more involved in the community, uh, getting involved in political life, just so that we could create a society that was more inclusive, that we didn't have these kinds of um, stereotypes and judgments um, placed on us. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda was a threat uh, to all of us, and... You know, the fact that the Taliban didn't seem to be hearing the messages that you need to hand them over uh, was, was quite distressing. So, yes, the decision to deploy was one that I would stand by to this day. As a direct result of 9-11, three and a half thousand New Zealanders served in Afghanistan. Ten lost their lives. The deployment also resulted in a warming of the relationship between the US and nuclear-free New Zealand. Eventually, officials within the Bush administration saw New Zealand's contribution and decided it was crazy to have New Zealand almost on the outer in, in security relations. Airport security was constantly refined and extended. Defence staff helped out until staff and infrastructure were in place. And while aviation security is an obvious legacy of 9-11, Dr Asen says there are more subtle ramifications. Most countries have now counter-terrorism legislation that they did not have before. We are generally a bit more willing to grant to the police and other agencies authorization that they, they perhaps didn't have under legislation before. Now, you don't necessarily see that on an everyday basis, but I do think that that trade-off between security and liberty, if you like, that has, that has adjusted a little bit. In 2007, police cited their new powers under the Terrorism Suppression Act in arresting 18 people in the Uruwera raids, though no charges under the act were laid. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 has reminded Helen Clark of a tattered New Zealand flag found in the ruins of the World Trade Centre. It was given to her by a fireman at Ground Zero a year after the attacks and afterwards displayed for a while at Parliament. I think it's a good thing to bring it out and remind people uh, that you know, this was a, a catastrophic event uh, which also impacted on New Zealand. 
Fiona Owen with that report. After the break, breakthrough Kiwi science being taken from the banks of the mighty Waikato to the world. Hoki Mayanor. This morning, Q&A can report Cabinet Ministers are considering a proposal to invest millions of dollars in a Kiwi-first technology, tapping into one of the most important resources of a low-carbon future. If it's approved, it's likely to be the first investment by Carnor, the revamped version of the Provincial Growth Fund. Shortly before the COVID-19 lockdown, I visited the central North Island to see the technology firsthand. She stands out like a hitchhiker's thumb. The Ohaki Geothermal Power Station looms 105 metres above Waikato. A monument to progress, a monument to loss. So for us around this area, there's a huge amount of mamai and pauri. There's a lot of sadness around the history that we've had here. This was uh, our second home as a people. And three different public work acts, um, legal processes that our people went through throughout history, and the sadness of that time, we, we lost these lands in long-term leases. It may look like New Zealand's done in about turn and joined the nuclear age, but the Ohaki Power Project is far from sinister. The Ohaki Power Station was opened in 1989, tapping the geothermal riches of the central North Island at the expense of those who called the area home. We weren't able to live on this land anymore. This land that we're particularly talking about, this was our home. We had houses here, we had thriving, we had horticulture, we had, we lived here. This was a big part of who we were. And for us to be able to lose that connection because of the power station coming here for the greater good of the country was a huge sacrifice for our people. But for the first time in a long time, the landscape at Ohaki is changing once again. In the last two years, with the support of Ngāti Tahu, Kiwi company Geo40 has built a specialist pilot plant off the back of the Ohaki power station. This is a technology that we're developing to be globally relevant. To understand the new technology, it's helpful to start with the old. Geothermal power works by bringing up extremely hot fluid from wells deep underground. The steam and liquid power turbines which generate electricity. Up until now, geothermal waste fluid either gets pumped out into local waterways or re-injected back underground where it came from. But actually, the waste fluid is itself dense with a range of useful minerals and elements which aren't used for power generation. So what this plant is doing is taking geothermal fluid uh, and we are mechanically uh, pulling out of that fluid uh, a product called colloidal silica. And it's, I guess, the foundation of natural nanotechnology. Uh, used in everything from paint to concrete uh, to adhesives. This is what colloidal silica actually looks like, but selling this as a commodity is only one of the benefits of Geo40's recovery process. At the moment, when geothermal fluid comes out of a power station, it's about 140 degrees Celsius, and all of that heat is wasted. This here is the equivalent of 10,000 jugs all boiling at once. But if you remove silica from geothermal fluid, you can use this heat. 
Removing silica could also save power companies from bigger bills under the emissions trading scheme. When geothermal plants bring up fluid from underground, it can release massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But by removing silica from that fluid, you can sequester the CO2 and put it back down underground where it came from. The industry is already sequestering some CO2 from geothermal power plants, but removing silica makes it a much more efficient process. In 2019, the Provincial Growth Fund, as it was then known, gave Geo40 a $15 million loan to help build the silica extraction plant. We look at commercial opportunities in the regions and we look at them from a commercial perspective but also the broader social outcomes, so looking at productivity, sustainability, multi economic development and jobs and so an investment like that was an opportunity to further those things. But since then the government has swapped some of that loan for an equity stake in the company as Geo40 proves it can extract silica at scale. Silica is a very valuable nanoparticle, um, particularly a low carbon uh, silica, so that's where our business model started. I think if we're able to add on uh, some value from uh, that waste heat and from CO2 sequestration, that makes the model a little stronger. Uh, and of course silica is also a, a precursor to chasing other minerals that are present in geothermal fluid, um, like lithium. You're smiling. It's, it's sort of the hot mineral, right? Yep, you heard right, lithium. By starting with silica, geo 40 scientists have worked out a process for getting a much more valuable element out of geothermal fluid. I think we all know that lithium will play a, a, an enormously important role in, uh, in the green transport revolution particularly. Um, the part of the sector we're aiming at is that EV um, battery market. Our goal is to be uh, you know, a premium supplier of ultra-low carbon, um, genuinely sustainable lithium for that market. At the Ohaki plant, amongst the pipes and the pressure gauges, some PhDs have been put hard to work. Yes, so the uh, geothermal fluid comes in. It is mixed with uh, this geosive sorbent, which selectively grabs onto the lithium. And then through some concentration steps, it is fed into the filter press there, which separates the geosieve from the brine, and then that geothermal brine can be re-injected back into the ground. The lithium is released from the sieve and converted to lithium carbonate. At Ohaki, the results are extremely promising. Uh, look, if we, if we scaled up at this site, uh, it's probably in round terms a dozen uh, Tesla batteries would rumble out each day. But the real opportunity lies overseas. Sites in South America have lithium concentrations 30 times stronger than in New Zealand. At the moment, companies get lithium by leaving fluid to evaporate in giant ponds in the desert. It's environmentally catastrophic. The Geo40 technology, though, is precise and much cleaner. The job we have in front of us is to do exactly what we've done on silica, to, to emerge from the lab, uh, go through piloting, uh, and scale up. By Christmas we will uh, be building a, a pilot plant uh, and what we'll do with that pilot plant is use it to process uh, larger volumes of fluid from all over the world. Well the opportunity is for a, a New Zealand industry to grow internationally um, and that's really important but broader than that there is an opportunity for jobs locally. And that's just it. For all the promise that Geo40 sees in lithium recovery and lucrative sites overseas, Ngāti Tahu see potential for riches of a different kind.
our goal is we've never let go of what our tupuna believed in and what our what our nanny and our karawa believed in, which was to connect and to, to live around our marae, to live around our, our river and to live on our own whenua. And for us, we see these developments as a stepping stone to help us to achieve that. Pretty amazing, eh? We are expecting Cabinet Ministers to make a decision on that Kanoa funding in the next couple of weeks. For now though, kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Marae is up shortly, and the One News team will bring you updates throughout the day. Hey te wiki, we'll see you next Sunday morning at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.